Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we're going to uh, read just the last verses of this gospel as we hear uh, the command that Jesus left with his people and for us to continue to carry out. We begin with the 16th verse. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, you saw fit to say these words and then to see that they have been preserved for us. It's your word, and your word is truth. And so, Lord, will you today teach us and apply your truth to our hearts? We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometime back, I was preaching about the pillars of St. Andrews. And I mentioned the four pillars, the the things that we uh, believe flesh out our mission statement our mission statement, which is helping people joyfully know Jesus Christ, love him more, and serve him better. We believe that that mission statement fits with this great commission that I just read. But in talking about the various pillars, and we're reminded of the four great pillars in front of our church, that hold up the front of it. But those that we see fitting with our statement are worship and service and outreach and teaching. I was delivering a message about teaching and about how that fits with discipleship. And I had by midweek, a 13-point sermon that I decided to be merciful, and I broke that into two sermons. But even in doing that, I told you that this needs to be a complete series. Now, you know that my preference is to take a book of the Bible and preach straight through. And so we 
did that with the Gospel of Mark. We finished that, and then for the summer we were in the Psalms. And I have been uh, thinking about and fleshing out for a number of months now uh, this uh, series of messages. You know, we talk about the term disciple, but how do we define that? Various churches do it in various ways. Some would say, well, you, you go through this program and it's six weeks long or it's 10 weeks long or it's 30 weeks long or whatever, and then you are a disciple. And we would say, no, it's not about a program. Some would say, well, it's, it's professing your faith in Christ. That's what this is talking about, evangelism. You make a commitment to Christ, and then you are a disciple. We would say that's part of it. But even in what Jesus said here, it goes far beyond that profession of faith. That's where it absolutely must begin. And so what we will do this fall is look at just what are the characteristics, what are the attributes of a disciple? What will I look like as I am growing to be more and more a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's that time of the year when we need football illustrations. I know you're ready for that, many of you. I love, and it's an, it's an old story, about the legendary Green Bay Packer coach, Vince Lombardi. What he would do as he began his uh, training camp is he would gather together all of the players and you would have the rookies and you would have the professional player, uh, the ones who'd been pros for a long time, and they would all be there, but all of them had played football all of their life, and he would pick up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would proceed to teach them the basics of the game. Blocking, tackling, passing, catching, kicking. All of those things these that they, they had grown up on, they had achieved the highest levels, but he would do that and he would build his team and his teams are themselves legendary. World champions, Super Bowl champions. That's what we're going to do in a sense. I will be saying to you, in one sense, gentlemen, this is a, a football because some of you have been in the church all of your life, and some of you, the church is new to you. And yet for all of us, it's a good thing to go back to those basics and to build and to rebuild. And that's what we will do in terms of learning what a disciple is. So as I begin my first, gentlemen, this is a football, 
is this. A disciple has a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. A disciple has a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. It sounds so basic, and it is. And yet, we have got to begin there. We can never presume that that is there. There's no point in going forward and looking at other characteristics of a disciple until we understand and we have grasped and we have experienced this relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So let's take a look at it. I'm, we're going to look in two passages today. Uh, and the first is in Romans 10, if you will turn to that. For us to see that biblical belief is central. Now before we look at uh, these verses in Romans 10, we need to understand there's, there's lots of kinds of belief. There's lots of kinds of faith out there. Theologian Louis Burkhoff breaks it down into at least three kinds that uh, are not saving faith. He talks about a historical faith, a miraculous faith, and a temporal faith. Now what he's talking about when he uh, mentions a historical faith, and what he's saying is that, that there are a lot of people that will have these kinds of faith, and they think it's, it's salvation, but it's not if that's all they have. By historical faith, he is uh, talking about a faith where one accepts the truths of Scripture only as one might accept a history that really they're not that personally interested in. It's similar to what we sometimes call an intellectual faith. Now, it can be the result of study. It can be the result of your upbringing. It can be the culture you live in. Here we are, right in the Bible Belt. The vast majority of people would claim to be Christians. If you pressed them, would claim to be disciples. Most people are members of a church, some of several churches, and that's the culture. And for some, that's where it ends. It may be public opinion, this kind of a faith. In other words, you may be in in an office where there's a number of other Christians, and so it's really the acceptable thing to be a Christian there. So much easier, just go with the flow. And for some, that's where it ends. Now, this faith may be accurate. It may be fundamentally orthodox. It may fit with what the Scripture says. But the problem is this faith, as he describes it, 
is not from the heart. There may be a, the, the second kind is a miraculous faith that he talks about. Now, that's a, a persuasion in one's mind that a miracle is going to take place either in your life or in someone else's life. You may say, what do you, what do you mean a miracle? Well, typically we would think of it in terms of a, a sickness or something like that. And you can see this in uh, the New Testament. There's various places where uh, Jesus does a miracle. There are people in attendance there. Some of them are anticipating that the miracle is going to take place. And for some of them, genuine biblical faith accompanies that. But for others, and in some places in the New Testament, it's just not clear whether it's accompanied by saving faith. It's faith in the miraculous but not necessarily in the Savior as your Savior. And then he talks about a a temporal faith. And there you can see, for instance, in the the parable of uh, the sower or of soils. And I'll just read you this from Matthew 13, verse 20. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word, at once receives it with joy, But since he has no root, he lasts only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now, that's basically a a temporary faith, a temporal faith. Uh, I I think of that, for instance, when people get on an airplane. (laughs) You know, they have faith. People pray that don't pray any other time. I'm convinced on an airplane. It used to, some would, would call a, a foxhole faith when people would be at war and in the foxhole. All of a sudden, they are praying people, people of faith. It's not that uncommon for me to, uh, when I've uh, done a funeral, to have someone who is in attendance at the funeral And what happens at funerals is the people are, you know, that may be the only time they're thinking about their eternity, about their mortality. And it's not uncommon for someone who has been moved by the emotions of that service, by grief that they're experiencing, for them to come to me after a service and say, you know what, I'm going to start back to church. I will see you Sunday. Now, sometimes that happens. And, you know, when they say that, I, I don't say, yeah, right, <laughs> you know. Uh, when, when, they, when they say that, you know, I hope it's a genuine thing. And I say, okay, I'll see you Sunday. You know what time we start, you know, and, uh, and so on. And I hope, I really do hope that it's genuine. But as often as not. Even though maybe they'll show up once, maybe not even that one time. Often, that feeling goes away and their temporal faith goes away as well. So if these are the false faiths, 
What does Romans 10 tell us about saving faith? Let's look at this in verse 9. Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now, I've, I decided just to confine it to this and another passage for our uh, sake today. But I believe this is, is sufficient. This is complete enough. Let's break it down. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, obviously, it's more than just somebody saying, that's all I got to do. Okay, Jesus is Lord. I've said it now. Does that mean I'm saved? Well, the rest of the verse doesn't permit it, just saying those words. It's, there's nothing magical about it, those words. But it's connected with a, a belief, and that's what it's uh, talking about. Uh, otherwise, it would fit in with uh, Burkhoff's distinction of uh, just a historical faith or uh, belief in facts. The fact is that Satan can say Jesus is Lord. The truth is Satan actually believes that Jesus is Lord. He knows that. It's not his Lord, but he is the Lord. And so obviously that's not sufficient. It's talking about something more than just uttering some words. And sadly, some people have prayed a prayer at some point and they are trusting in the fact that they said these words and somebody right after that said, well, good, you're saved. And the belief never went anywhere. That moment they might have been sincere, but there was no discipleship. No fruit and words by themselves are not sufficient. And that's why he goes on. He says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, we have the belief part. And that's, that's an essential word here. But I want you to notice also that this tells me that the resurrection is the core belief of salvation. Now, again, that might sound completely obvious. You're holding up the football again. Here's a football. Of course it is. The reason I say that, though, is that we need to understand that one cannot be saved if they believe Jesus is dead and still dead. And there are those that would claim to be Christians that would say, no, no I don't believe in a, a literal resurrection. He didn't really walk out of the grave. He, he's alive every time we get together and we remember him. He's alive every time we follow his example. You see, liberal theology has taken that route and has said it doesn't really even matter whether he uh, literally rose from the dead, and Paul would say, oh, it does. Absolutely. That is the core belief. 
You cannot be saved if you think that the resurrection is impossible and Jesus couldn't have been raised. So what it's saying is that uh, if you just say he's a great prophet or a great man or even the greatest man or the greatest example, that's not saving faith. The Christian faith has content that must be believed from one's heart. Don't believe. Don't believe for a moment. The lie that comes, I'm convinced, from hell where some will say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That is just a lie. Those who trust in that will spend eternity separated from God. So what is the belief? Well, the Greek word here for believe is a specific one. It means to put your personal trust and confidence in. So it's not just believing that it's a fact, but putting your trust in, your confidence in this one who walked out of the grave, rose from the dead. Paul's use of heart here is more than just our seed of emotions, it includes the mind. So it's, it's the mind and the emotions together. He goes on, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So it is saying and believing, and then he does it the opposite way, believing and saying. Both are necessary for salvation, for a biblical faith. Now, I want us to look also at Ephesians that was read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Because we've got to understand that it's not striving to add to our salvation. And that is a key. Not striving to add to our salvation is a key if we are to be saved. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works. You cannot add to what Jesus did on the cross, and you mustn't try. You see, that's our tendency, is to to feel like, okay, yeah, I know I'm saved, I really believe that, and I'm saved, but I, now i got to do something to, to stay right with God. And he said, it's finished, it's complete. And it was complete. Now we will learn, as disciples, what our attributes are to be. But none of those add to our salvation. Salvation is not what you do, it's what he did on the cross that saves you. So when it comes to salvation, don't tell me about when you got baptized, don't tell me about how much you read your Bible, don't tell me about how long you've been a church member and what you've done in a church. 
when it comes to salvation, none of those things can save you. They're all important. But none of them can save you, make you more saved, make God love you more. That's impossible. Only the finished work on the cross was enough to bring salvation. Salvation is not about his need for you, but your need for him. God doesn't need us. He wants us. And that's why it's grace. Salvation is not what you'd give him. It's what he gave you. And that's faith. That was the message of the Reformation. The justification that salvation is not man's gift to God. Here, God, we do this and we give this to you. It was God's gift to man. Just the opposite of what we would think. It's not what you give him, it's what he gave you. That's the effectual calling part that we read about earlier. The giving of faith. It's not about how much you love him. It's about how much he loves you. Our salvation is initiated by him. His love came first, and we simply respond. The moment we think it's the other way around, in other words, I found him, we'll begin to take credit for our salvation. You see, you think of, for instance, Zacchaeus. How often have you heard it preached that, look at Zacchaeus, he climbed up in the tree, You should be like Zacchaeus and go seeking Jesus. And look, Zacchaeus was rewarded because he climbed up in the tree. Well, if that was the case, then it was his works that got him salvation. But that's not what the Bible says. That passage says, yeah, he climbed up in the tree, but Jesus was walking along and he looked up in the tree and he called out, Zacchaeus. He called him by name because he knew him before the foundation of the world. That's not in Luke, that's over in Ephesians. But he called him by name. Zacchaeus, you come down. I must go to your house today. And that's when salvation went to his house, not because of how great Zacchaeus was or that he made good choices, but because of what Jesus did. Salvation is not knowing all about God. It's knowing God. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, talks about that. That one can know a lot about God and not know God. And, you know, I love living in the Bible Belt. But that's one of our greatest dangers. A lot of people around us know a lot about God. And some of those same people don't know him as Savior in Christ. It's not what you know, it's who you know. 
I, when I lived in Atlanta, went to a lot of Braves games. There is one that I will never forget. Now, I don't, I don't remember who they were playing. I don't remember if they won. I remember where I was sitting. I got to sit down in Turner's box. In, uh, that's down there where you, you see you know, President Jimmy Carter, sometimes he wasn't there the night I was there. But you see people like that in that box right there, connected virtually. So there's a wall, but you can hear them talking to the Braves dugout. There's a place where you can walk down to this room behind that's full of food and refreshments. It was great. We saw the players up close Talk to them before the game. They won't talk to you during the game. We were, we were right there. I'll never forget that. Why was I there, me and my boys? Well, it was because I was friends with the son of State Senator Terrell Starr. Terrell Starr did a lot of work with their foundation. He was given the box for an evening. It was my relationship with the son that got me the privileges. I didn't deserve him. I couldn't have paid for him. How much more is our salvation? It begins with that relationship with the son. To the Father. Okay, so you believe that Jesus is alive and He truly is Lord. How do we get these special privileges, this salvation? Well, in Romans 10, verse 13, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's calling on Him. I want to ask all of you if you will please take the outline that's in in your worship guide. And there is a prayer at the bottom of that outline. For some of you, it will be similar to prayer that you have prayed and giving your life to Christ long ago. I'm in a moment going to give you time to read it through. And what you believe there to make those Words, your words. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. For some of you, maybe you realize I've got a historical faith or a temporal or a miraculous faith, but I've never really put my trust and confidence in Him alone. I've put it in Him and I've tried to add to it. Let me encourage you to read this simple prayer of faith You who know the Lord, reaffirm your belief. And in the name of Jesus, I invite those who don't yet know him to pray to him today. Let's bow together.